we are recording. Do you want more tools to improve your working life? Then join Is This Working on Patreon, the community platform for supporting creators like us. Support us on Patreon and you'll get perks, including a weekly reading list from us packed with things that will make your working life better. Find us at patreon.com slash is this working show. Hi, Bruce. Thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Um, It's a real honor to have you. Um, We want to kind of turn the tables and talk a bit about you first, because you get so many interesting thinkers on your show who tell you about their working lives and their philosophies and thinking around work culture. But we really want to hear about you and your working life. So could we start by you telling us your work story? Yes. Um, so I uh, well, I started. Um, I, I'm in a group in a council estate in Birmingham, and so I had no real role models of what jobs that people were meant to do. And and yeah, I went to university, but um, I applied. I, I I had no idea what jobs you were meant to do at the end of university, and I, I applied for jobs in record companies, um, and because I loved record uh, music, and um, and because I was getting no response, I ended up drawing a four-page cartoon CV of my life and sending that out. Because so I was sort of doing, I was doing mail-outs on yellow paper, I was doing mail-outs on orange paper, thinking I just want to get someone's attention. And I guess broadly, the, the applications we were doing were so bad, or, you know, they just had nothing on them, you know, I had no experience. Anyway, the moment I drew this cartoon CV, I got loads of responses, it was sort of transformational, really, in terms of the interest I got. Uh, and I ended up working, I didn't get, well, I got offered a job at uh, a record company, but failed my driving test, and that was one of the conditions of getting the job. But I ended up using that CV to get a job in Cap- at Capital Radio, and I worked in radio for about 10 years, and then a bit of publishing, and then I... Um, I got made redundant actually, and uh, from there join the club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not not a bad thing. Um, and uh, and I ended up sort of someone approached me for a job at Google, and I ended up working at Google for four years, pretty much setting up YouTube in the UK, um, and that was great fun. And um, and then from there, I uh, I ended up being sort of headhunted to go and work at Twitter, and I worked for eight years at Twitter sort of helping set up Twitter across Europe, really. So Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Great. Um, And can you tell us from that story how you came to become so obsessed with work culture? Yeah, in one of the jobs, in the publishing job, (laughs) company now called Bauer, but it was called EMAP at the time, um, there was a... The boss actually was quite visionary about workplace culture, and he created a team that was the people in culture team. And the the people who ran that were sort of very good friends of mine. Um, and as a consequence, I um, 
I ended up sort of becoming fascinated with their work. They went on and set up a, a consultancy called Wonder. And I, I was really fascinated with their work. Um, and I was just... I was just thrilled with the idea of workplace culture. One, this place, EMAP, had an amazing culture. And compared to other publishing firms, um, it was, it was you know, like people who worked at one of the competitors would say, we just, all, all we hear about is your culture and, you know, how you guys are killing it and how, how you guys are sort of more innovative and coming up with new magazines all the time. And that everyone is really envious of, of your culture. And so... Then, so I was obsessed about it. And then when I got the opportunity to work at Google, I thought, well, you know, I, you know, wow, what an honor to go and work at the place that everyone thinks has got the best culture in the world. Um, and, I, you know, like you often, I break my life into sort of, you know, scrawny years and things like that. Like, yeah, I'll do this job for two years. I'll do this job for, anyway, I thought, well, what an honor. If I, I'm only able to last there for two years, what an honor to have worked at Google. And I think it was fair to say that I realized pretty quickly, and I loved Google, but I realized pretty quickly that the, um, the culture that everyone talks about externally bears no relation whatsoever to the culture internally there. You know, and probably sort of most visibly um you often hear people talk about the google 70 20 10 rule and 70 yes. 20 10 is the idea that you spend 70 percent of your time on your main job and then 20 percent of your time on a project and then 10 percent of your time on whatever you want so variously you occasionally hear people talk about 20 percent time you occasionally hear people talk about 10 percent time it's all part of the same thing anyway when i was there for six months you want to get through your probation don't you uh, when I was there for six months, I um, I chatted to someone. I said, "How does it work with uh, with this?" And they said, "Oh, we don't really do it." Anyway, I was like, "Oh, really? Oh, that was like one of the big things I was so thrilled about." Anyway, I ended up sort of realizing that maybe I was helping to set up YouTube, so maybe in sort of the commercial business side of things, uh, we didn't do it. And I chatted to an engineer, and I, I said to the engineer. Um, do you guys do uh, 20% time? He said, yeah, yeah, 20% time. We call that Saturday. And uh, <laughs> I was like, right, okay. What I've fallen foul of is like this this deception that I saw slides and I saw bean bags and I saw stories of 20% time. And I thought, wow, this is like a company built, sort of wired differently. Everyone else is on analog. This company is on digital. And then while I was there, I was like, uh, none of that was true. And so the dissonance you get from that, and it's really interesting. Uh, about a year and a half ago, Google had this walkout um, over a sort of succession of, of events that had happened. They had this employee walkout where I think a quarter of the workforce walked out. And it's, for me, it's like that dissonance coming to bear where people are feeling like we were told that this was going to be a, a substantially different organisation it's actually exactly the same as every organization we've ever worked in. Um, to some extent, it's, it's slightly more bureaucratic than some. And, um, and so, you know, there's this dissonance there. So I was just fascinated with that. Anyway, I was, I was working at Twitter. And um, so, you know, having joined Twitter, and uh, Twitter is an incredible place, but I thought <laughs> this gives me the opportunity to build uh, the Twitter culture from the ground up in the UK. And so, you know, there were th there were a few things that I instinctively did. One of the first things that I did um, 
was that the there was what the rule number one of Twitter UK was blame Bruce. So if any of my people got into trouble for something, they should say Bruce told me to do it. Uh, and so because I just wanted them to sort of work with no fear of making a misstep. And I get I guess it's it's only when I sort of started studying the basis of workplace culture. I guess that's psychological safety. But um, you know, I I was fascinated with how I could just free these people up to do their best work. And I just remembered, for me, it was always like this indelible sort of fear that, you know, you were going to get in trouble with some for something. And so you just didn't make decisions. You just didn't do stuff. You erred on the size of caution. I thought, yeah, I'd rather they made loads of calamitous mistakes, but did a few glorious things. And so, you know, we would do, we were very maverick compared to Twitter globally. And the philosophy was just blame Bruce. So I, I basically, along the way, I ended up, it went wrong. And so, you know, all those good things, it went wrong. And uh, I sort of did a couple of things wrong. And the, the, company, um, the company sort of had an economic downturn. And the culture, which had been like this incredible competitive advantage, people were just, you know, people would routinely say, wow, the Twitter presentation at that day was the best of the day. Or, you know, we love, every time we have a meeting with Twitter people, everyone buzz off what incredible people they are. And, uh, and then sort of along the way, it sort of went wrong. And, you know, one, way, one year we had about 40% of the team leave in one year. Uh, and, you know, that's just exhausting. The amount of leaving dues you have to go to, it's, uh, it just ruins your Thursday nights. Um, <laughs> And uh, no, and I just thought, right, okay. I wonder if I, I wonder if you can make a party good again. When all your guests start leaving at nine o'clock, can you make a party pop again? And so it was like that. Can I make this work culture pop again? Make it sort of. And and what I discovered was, look, I started reading more than just the um, the sort of the the front table books at bookshops, but I started reading academic papers about workplace culture, and I was just. It's astonished that there's a field called organisational psychology. And I was astonished that the, there were people who studied social physics and there were people who looked at how organisations work. Because in the whole time that I'd been in work, which was probably 20 years, um, none of this had ever reached me. So I was just, I was just baffled by how so much good work was taking place and yet, None of it was reaching the people who needed it. So that was sort of my journey, really. So the podcast was Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. A lot of the stuff I do now goes into my newsletter, which, you know, you could get at my website. But um, because I, I just, I know that for me, feeling motivated in my job was laughing at work, was feeling inspired by the job I was doing. And I was just intrigued. Was there a simple way for every organization to, to establish that, really? It's really interesting because um, you've you've talked about this kind of journey you've gone on with what started as a fascination with work culture, and it's now very much become your mission to actually transform work for others. As you know, through your podcast, through your newsletter, through your books, um, can you tell us a bit about where that comes from and where this drive to uh, help other people improve their working lives, but also to actually kind of change culture at more of a team and company level as well yeah um you know i i loved i loved nothing more it's sort of one of the things i miss now but i loved nothing more than um than 
working in a team where someone does something where you just you fizz with the excitement of how creative it is like it wow so it's so original it's so breathtakingly inventive or it's so audacious and you know i love i really love simple things like laughing with teammates we used to i miss office life i mean not least corona but um but you know i i, I don't have a full time job anymore but um but i i miss that sort of that moment of for me re-energization that you come out of an exhausting meeting or series of meetings or series of meetings and phone calls um, and then you just sit at your desk for 20 minutes and you end up find yourself laughing hysterically about something casual and those moments of connection were so life affirming to me that I, I you know and it, I recognize that's a privilege to have a job that you enjoy but um the uh you know I, I was just firstly I wanted to know if there was a formula that you could could you make any workplace feel like that? Could you make a bad workplace feel better? And then, um, you know, if someone close to me told me that their job, you know, people used to cry in the toilets at lunchtime. There was there was a lot of unhappiness there. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, actually, most of the good organisations I've worked in haven't been down to a visionary boss. They've been down to just really good, enlightened co-workers. And so it, it was an interesting thing for me. I was like, okay, well, maybe all of the books you see in, in WH Smith's business section, they're all about how to be a le- better leader, how to be like this, this sort of inspirational boss. And I thought, you know, the secret of good workplace culture for me doesn't exist there. It doesn't live there. So I was, um, I, I was, so driven by what I'd learned by the research I'd done that I was just, I was really struck that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that I think had made my job so enjoyable, other people could apply in their jobs as well, I guess. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to ask that's kind of related is, and you touched on this earlier when you mentioned that you do really miss being in the office. How are you finding this, um, this current way of working where you're not in an office and where you're um, doing things um, presumably without that kind of team around you. Uh, how, how has that kind of been for you? Yeah. I mean, look, um, in my, uh, I wrote a book on workplace culture and in my book, I talk a lot about the importance of teams feeling in sync with each other uh, in, in it with each other. And a lot of that is comes from them being around other people and working with other people. And, you know, a lot of the evidence about remote work isn't necessarily great in terms of the team cohesion that you get. So I've sort of, I, I, re, I remain keen that the, there's things that the, the office can achieve that, um, that, you know, remote working on its own can't achieve. But I think there's been a recognition that, that there's been a rebalancing of that. It's interesting at the start of this year, I, I honestly thought the big debate this year would be about the four day week about, mm. you know, people working compressed hours, four day week or six hour day. And, you know, people working in different ways. And there were two books that came out in sort of January, February about that. And I thought, yeah, that this is going to be the year where the debate on burnout goes there. And then absolutely it, it sort of, 
that was turned on its head and it became clear that, you know, that it's, it's been a year about remote working. And it's, it, to some extent, it was, there was a big division where US workers were chatting about remote working and um, UK workers were talking about compressed hours. And, um, and you know, the, the US won with this sort of remote working thing. So look, you know, who knows? But I, I do think it's been good for bringing to the fore debate, discussion, number one, about what our jobs are, about what working really is, what how we should best try and create culture. Um, I think there's an interesting discussion right now that's going to be happening, which is, you know, how do you create culture uh, without an office? It's, you know, these things are such fascinating challenges, I think. Um, we're going to delve more into um, work culture and a lot of the themes in your book because we've both read your book and we're really excited by a lot of the suggestions you make for improving work culture. Before we delve into that, would you be able to explain to our listeners who don't know what we mean when we say the term work culture? Yeah, um, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, for me, it's it's all about how work feels. It's sort of like our connection with the the people and the workplace that we we have. It, for me, it's about the spirit of an organisation, the zest of an organisation. Other people sort of are more precise in the, the way that they want to define culture. Um, you know, me, for me, it's like the ambience of a restaurant. It's like I, I can't necessarily describe it in words. Or the ambience of a bar. I can't necessarily describe it in words, but there's some places that I just buzz off going to. Um, and uh, so it's like that. Some people describe culture and they sort of, they're more specific. And they talk about like, you know, culture's the way things get done around here. Culture's the norms and behaviours. And I'm just not that sort of precise kind of guy. But yeah, for me, it's like the buzz of the place. So the work vibes, the good work vibes. Work vibes, vibes correct. <laughs> Hashtag work vibes. But also, you know, when it's going wrong, as you've said, from your experience of people leaving without a job, 40% of people leaving the same company, it's something that you know, when it's not working. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you can really tell um, when an organisation, like, you know, one of the organisations I worked Everyone in the office was silent all the time. And um, and so I made the point of uh, we, when we moved to a different part of the office, I bought just a, a music system, actually, and put it on, which um, – and, and like, you know, people could choose to sit where the music was or could choose to sit where the music wasn't. But it just – and, you know, most people were doing email and distractible stuff, but it just added an, a different feel to the place. Um, and – Anyway, it was, you know, the, the, the office was so quiet. God, that's uh, the office was so quiet that people would, um, that people would tell you off for making phone calls. They would tell you off for having conversations. Um, you know, it was, it was so quiet that it was almost oppressive. Um, and, you know, it just felt to me like, right, okay, this doesn't feel, this doesn't feel, like an enjoyable place to work. I don't think anyone's going to go home at the end of the day here saying, wow, what a wonderful day's work when everyone sat in total silence, whispering when they needed to say something. So, you know, it, it's sometimes those 
those little things about connection. A, re- a, a workplace shouldn't feel like, you know, it shouldn't feel like a restaurant. It shouldn't be sort of buzzing with chat all the time. But the, there does need to feel a little bit of connection between the people there. Um, what I really like in your book is how you often talk about how if something's not working, that you should experiment with alternatives. So um, the bit I'm thinking about in particular is when you talk about uh, the morning monk mode, yeah. which is um, uh, which is I'm v- a very big fan of it. It's something that um, I learned about also through Cal Newport's deep work. Yeah. Um, and it's about having those sacred mornings for doing deep creative thinking and not having all of the distractions of email and meetings and those kinds of things. Um, What I'm curious about though, is that do you think we have a culture um, sort of in, in the UK and in kind of office culture of not encouraging that kind of experimenting though? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's a really interesting moment that we're going through right now where um, to, to a large extent, it's the first time that many of us, many organisations, have set about trying to design the way they work because most of us have worked via tradition and just what's been passed down to us. You know, we've we've watched how our boss works. We watched how the organisations we were employed into worked. Um, and even though there's been phenomenal techno- technological advancement in the last 20 years, we've pretty much just made sort of these incremental tweaks year on year to the way we're working. And this is the first time that we've set about trying to design our work. And this is something that um, the organisation Chatham House are running sort of this design biennial where they're, they're saying, you know, like, how can design going forward change the world post-COVID? And, and one of the things I think is for us to think about how can we design the way we're working? So what what might that mean? It might mean, um, you know, rules about how we engage with each other. It might mean we the uh, one of the things that we had at Twitter for half the team was no meeting Thursday. Now, obviously, in the context of people working completely remotely, what does no meeting Thursday actually look like? Maybe you sort of need to change that. But setting about thinking, could we design our workplace? is going to be really helpful. And, and I think one of the reasons why that might happen is that you've got uh, loads of organisations right now that are wrestling with, do we get people back to work in September? Um, can we get everyone back? If we can't get everyone back, do we have a red team that comes in on Monday and Wednesday, a blue team that comes in on Tuesday and Thursday? How does that look like? Should we have spoke to one organization last week that says okay we're not getting everyone back but we are going to have a team gathering in a field somewhere in September and you know people are sort of thinking more than ever before intentionally about how do we create the workplace that we believe that the organization needs and so you know I think probably for the first time there's, there's a real sense an excited sense of of experimentation where people are interested to try things out that's really exciting because the whole way Anna and I's podcast came to be is because when we became self-employed we suddenly could start playing with different ways of working and find things that worked well for ourselves 
um, we both, Anna recommended Cal Newport to me and I found it life-changing because on the one hand, so I'm a natural extrovert. When you talk about putting music on in the office, it, it makes me yearn for when I used to work in offices and like the, um, I used to work in startups and like the founder would be gone and like the whole team would put music on and like the vibes yeah. as you say. And I absolutely adored all of that. And I loved having lunch with people and I'm just, you know, but I, I now do, I work on my own at home and I do hours of focused, concentrated, solitary work, which I also adore for other reasons. So, um, so I, so I try, so there's a kind of that tension of creating both those things, but because I'm self-employed, I can make those decisions for myself. Whereas I remember I worked in companies where I tried to say, I don't want to have meetings in the morning and they'd say, oh, well, the tech team want them because they blah, 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 and there'd be tension. And But anyway, this is a really long-winded way of saying that I absolutely adore so much of your suggestions <laughs> in your book and have done so much of that experimenting myself with Anna as my counsel. But the question we had is, what do you suggest? And, and again, I've worked with founders who would do their own monk time, but the juniors weren't allowed to do the monk time. Yeah. So, so, so what do you suggest for the more junior people who want to work well for themselves, but don't feel like they have that power to make that change? Yeah. And, and really, this was like the big audience I was thinking about, because, you know, I, in the same way that I felt that the best cultures I worked in were always bottom-up cultures rather than top-down cultures. I, I knew that there's a lot of people who feel utterly powerless. And there's some really interesting evidence on it. Quite often, um, you these, these uh, one researcher, she did a really nice TED Talk called Leslie Perlow, and she looked into people's relationships with email and their devices because she was finding that a lot of people were saying that they were uh, overwhelmed. But when she said to them, okay, so why don't you create these rules? They would say, sort of learned helplessness, but they would say, um, the, you don't understand, I can't do that, I can't do that. And so she sort of started making these interventions where in a, in a um, consulting firm, Boston Consulting Group, she said, okay, you, um, you, here's the rules. You, you've all got to have one night a week where you don't look at your email. Uh, she went on to, to make it them even more. And uh, she, she described it as a sort of team game. And she said, so if you look at your email on Monday night and it was your night off, the whole team loses. And she created these exercises. And what she discovered was the cooperation in the team went up. Um, people would try and support each other. Look, it's your Monday night. You're going out to the theater. I don't want you to look at these. So they would all support each other. They said their cooperation went up. Their, their enjoyment of their job went up. And more than anything, they realized that there were negotiables in their job they could change things but they just needed to discuss them and so my feeling was always okay i wonder if all of us can change our jobs a bit more than we think but we probably need to bring evidence to a team discussion um and and see if, see you know so the the idea that i would be thinking right now would be um you know if these if your team was gathering say in september that someone in the team says, I wonder if we could bring an item to the agenda about the way we're working. And the the item to the agenda might be, look, you know, we're doing 30 hours a week of video calls right now. Um, you, none of us feel that it's good long-term for our mental health and, you know, it, it's not good for our productivity. In fact, you know, a lot of people are doing emails while they're, while they're on these video calls. They're, they're not focusing 
could we set about doing it differently? And, and I'm convinced that even the, the, the worst teams um, would, you know, the bosses would consider a dialogue where they say, okay, does everyone feel like this? Yes, everyone feels like this. Right, what could we do? And so my feeling was there was a book a few years ago by the, the guys who um, run the organisation Basecamp, and they've written two or three books on work. Um, and one of them was called Rework. And uh, it's like these series of about 70 provocations. You know, ASAP is toxic, is one of them. And, you know, there's, there's all these sort of angry provocations about how to fix work. And I thought, if I turned up to my boss and handed him that book, he'd say, there's no evidence for any of this. This is just someone's opinion. It's a boss's opinion. Yeah, I'm not interested in it. And, um, and, uh, and my feeling was, well, look, you know, bosses aren't necessarily manifestly evil, but if they're going to want to change something, you need to bring them some receipts. You need to bring a bit of proof. You need to try and demonstrate why your suggestion is better than the status quo. So, you know, as much as I loved the book Rework, I just felt, you know, if junior people are going to try and make suggestions, they need they need a bit of evidence on their side. Do you think that our uh, post-pandemic, in our post-pandemic world, it might be easier to have these kinds of conversations um, and that it may potentially also be easier to improve work in the ways that, you know, outlined in your book and all of these things that we're talking about now? Yeah, I think so. One of the things I think is going to be a disruptive force is that for, you know, for a lot of people, all of those people on the central line coming into central London every day or all the people on the train coming in from wherever, you know, broadly they were all going to offices where the culture was, you know, the, the differences were superficial. You know, everyone was at a desk. Everyone was in open plan. The question was how nice the open plan was. You know, the the truth about most people's experience of work was largely determined less by the company they worked for and more by their line manager. Um, whereas actually, if you project forwards, I don't think that's going to be the case. So, you know, I really strongly believe that... Um, that the the website glass door is going to be coming to its own because there's going to be a lot of people who you know say if they're working in one sector the the difference of experience of working in one law firm to another law firm or one publishing firm to another publishing firm or one train company to another train company is going to be massive some are going to sort of empower their workers create autonomy create motivation and some are going to just have people on hours and hours of video calls. Um, and the difference is going to be just so vivid that I think for the first time, people will will read those Glassdoor reviews and say, you know, I'm just done with sitting, staring into my computer screen for 40 hours, 50 hours a week, sitting down. I want to try this other thing out and, and do different things. I love that. The idea that um, for those that don't know, Glassdoor is a website where you can review what it's like to work at a company. And um, I actually really enjoy reading all the reviews, even though I'm not interested in working company, uh, working, getting a job. But it is fascinating. There was was a brilliant one. I uh, I interviewed a guy for my podcast, a guy called Marcus Buckingham and um, sort of very distinctive his book is i think seven lies about work and it's like this you know and some of the things in it are really good and um, you know that 
appraisals don't work and uh, OKRs, the sort of quarterly things that a lot of American companies have don't work. Really interesting provocations. But one of the things that I really took issue with was that he said, um, you, you don't have to have purpose in the organisation, you cascade meaning down. And I was like, okay, what, what does that actually mean? I, I hate the word purpose, by the way. But, um, uh, I, uh, but you cascade meaning down. And like he gave two examples. He gave example of Facebook and of Chick-fil-A. Well, Facebook, I know a lot of people who work at Facebook. And to say that they feel conflicted and um, in a sort of morally confused state is an understatement. And Chick-fil-A is an organisation that's um, a sort of uh, very um, ex- uh, ex- sort of... Um, extreme Christian organisation, to the extent that it, it uh, funds organisations that are anti-gay uh, rights and it doesn't open on Sunday because that's the Lord's Day and it does all these things. But if you're a burger flipper, I've worked in two fast food restaurants, if you're a burger flipper at Chick-fil-A, there's no doubt that you don't join it because of its moral stand on you know, Sunday opening. You don't join it because of its moral stand on and LGBT rights, you, you join it because you're looking for, you know, a minimum wage job to pay your rent. Anyway, so this guy peddled all this. And anyway, I took issue with him. And I, sort of, I had a bit of a ding-dong on my podcast about it. Anyway, I was sort of so, so taken with why would he give these two organisations? Anyway, I searched into it, and he's a consultant for both companies. It's like, wow, that feels really grubby to me that... You know, he's a consultant for these two companies. He's he's called them out, which I think both of them in an objective appraisal would um, you would question whether, you know, they really are about meaning. Anyway, then I then I, I was like really intrigued with this. And I went to read the Glassdoor reviews of his organization and uh, the, the Glassdoor reviews of his organization are sort of car crash reviews. You sort of. Wow, you're astonished that someone who's um, uh, you're astonished with how someone who ostensibly is out promoting how to have good workplace culture, how to improve work, can run an organisation that feels so dysfunctional. So um, I was sort of yeah, like you know, Glassdoor. I think hopefully is going to be like this radical transparency device that helps us improve all companies. Yeah, it's power to the people. Um, Hopefully. But the, I guess the only challenge is as someone who's been senior at a company and read bad Glassdoor reviews is, you know, it's a bit like the only people that leave a review on TripAdvisor are the ones who are seriously disgruntled or, seriously, or very happy. So it's quite hard sometimes to get that balance right. But I think if you've got an honest culture, if, you, if you've got a culture where genuinely you believe that... Um, you know, people are treated well and they react well to that and you've got good pulse scores and whatever. I don't think that, you know, it's beyond the ken of a culture team, of a HR team to say, guys, listen, we're not going to give you any more admin, but we would appreciate if people would leave a glass door review about their experience because it's going to help us. If you feel that this is a good working environment, it's going to help us attract other people. Obviously, if you don't enjoy it, please feel free either to send it directly to me, the chief exec, what you're going to say, and I'll, I'll, t- I'll take it. Or, you know, post it on Glassdoor and, and 
you know, it's there for the world to see. I don't think it's beyond the the ken of of good organisations to try and encourage that. So I do hear you, but um, you know, it, it look. I think the challenge with work is we often don't learn lessons from other places. Right now, anyone trying to sort of learn how to build good cultures through screens would be well advised to look into. Um, what other web communities have done, how other organisations, distributed organisations, have built and sustained passionate communities on the web. And, you know, uh, quite often if you go into a hotel right now, everywhere these things saying to you, please leave a review on TripAdvisor. Please leave a, you know, can we encourage you to leave a review on TripAdvisor? And it's just strange when it comes to work. We should, We just don't believe that the tactics that are used in other fields apply to our work. I just find it astonishing. You know, you get to the end of the year, you could say to a team, look, I'd really, I'd really be grateful if people would leave a review. But, you know, of course, feel free to, to post exactly and honestly your experience. Don't feel the, the need to sugarcoat it. Right. Immediately what you've done is you've hopefully demonstrated to the wider world what it's like to work at your organisation. Yeah, and that's a great platform for greater accountability to your workers as well as your customers. So, absolutely. Um, but to take a different uh, uh, turn, just to go back to all our discussion around the impact of the pandemic on work, of course, Zoom, and we did an episode um, about Zoom on this podcast and how it's transformed how people work. And so the office is a leveler in a way because everyone comes to the same space and works in the same space. Um, but obviously Zoom and the rise of remote working are here to stay. Um, and obviously, you know, the benefit of that is it's easier access for people who can't afford to live in big cities such as London. Now the job market might be more open to them and flexible working and all these other benefits. But something we talked about on our show was it also can expose new inequalities of the home so you've got you know the people who have their own office within their home and have quiet and can have working internet um contrasting against people who are navigating sharing wi-fi sharing space um or even literally just how you know your backdrop might look on zoom and that inequality being exposed there um so how do you think how can we navigate that tension in this developing working world yeah absolutely someone said to me a different angle the other day i was on um i was on something with some charity workers and um a woman in her 40s said i'm desperate to get back to the office because since i've been home i'm a mother i'm a i'm a um i'm a homemaker as well as a full-time job she said my domestic responsibilities have gone through the roof i'm cooking more meals every day uh, no one's doing the cleaning apart from me. And, you know, people are sort of talking about these lovely things about working from home. She said, my workload has doubled and, you know, I'm, it's sort of invisible. So, this, and, you know, we, we do know that domestic responsibilities don't fall equitably between the sexes. So, um, so obviously, you know, th- these loads of things. I was on a, a call with someone from London Business School um, a few weeks ago. And and she started off, it was like a seminar, and she started off saying, you know, we're sort of in the fifth week of the lockdown and it's fair to say I think we've all got our home offices well sorted now. And, uh, you know, meanwhile there was a guy dialing in where you could see the extractor fan on his cooker. Uh, You know, he's sort of sitting on the kitchen table. Like the the experience is 
clearly not evenly distributed. Um, and having some awareness of that is, is obviously of critical importance. The interesting thing about sort of remote working is that if a lot of companies do adopt this sort of Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday model or do a ch- adopt a model where, you know, you work from the office on Tuesdays and Thursdays or um, what that does is it still shackles us to cities. It still tethers us to, to these places. And I'm intrigued whether more organisations might say we're going fully remote, but we're going to expect you to meet up with us in Manchester one one month, one quarter, Leeds one quarter, you know, Edinburgh one quarter, and, and they sort of start seeing themselves as fully distributed. I'm interested whether any British organisations do that. Um. You've talked to so many brilliant thinkers for your work, both in your book and in your podcast. What's the most game-changing idea that you've come across? What's been the the one thing that has really, really stuck with you and that you've either um, wanted to implement in your own working life or that you really think that all companies should adopt? Yeah, I love, you know, you mentioned Cal Newport before. I love the fact that Cal Newport asks questions that some people don't ask. So um, one of the questions that he asks in a discussion I had with him, is he said, what would work look like if we didn't have email accounts? And what he meant by it specifically was, especially when we were in the office, he said, what about if there was only group email, not individual email? So if you needed to get a message out to people, you sent it, but you um, but you didn't have individual email accounts because, you know, he was saying he's a computer software engineer, but he was saying, like, you know, if you hire a, a computer scientist, and half of their week is spent answering and receiving emails, then you're kind of not allowing them to do the job they're meant to do. It's like hiring a teacher, and teachers are only teaching half the week because they're doing emails. Like, why are they doing emails? We've hired them to teach. And his feeling was, I'd love to try an organization. I think he's writing a book called A World Without Email. Um, He... uh, He is because I emailed his people to ask for a quote while I was writing a piece and I wanted to get a quote for him and it was about email and they said he's not answering email because he's writing this book about no email. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and it was like, it doesn't matter whether you think he's uh, right or wrong. I love the fact he's asking that question. What Mm. would, um, what would a, a work, a world of work without email look like? Um, and I was just intrigued by that. So, you know, the people who sort of ask those provocative things or looking into things that you wouldn't have thought are really interesting. I chatted to a brilliant guy a couple of weeks ago, workplace property expert, and, you know, I was talking to him because I'm really interested in system-wise, what will happen if loads of firms – I chatted to someone at a major newspaper – and he said, you know, we've got 1,200 people who come into this office every day. He said every newspaper's in the midst of job cuts. You know, the uh, we, we used to have 1,200 people coming in. In the last, you know, the, the lockdown, we've had 30 people come in and the newspaper's not changed. He said anyone who doesn't believe that we're going to fundamentally reinvent the way that we're working is, is mad. And, you know, you aggregate all of that up and you think, the demand for office space is self-evidently going to go down. So then you start thinking, wow, if the demand for office space goes down, what are we going to do with all this office space? And you start thinking, okay, well, residential probably. And so, you know, 
maybe a lot of the people who currently can't get on the property ladder or students or, you know, people who you can almost imagine a situation where people sort of work in city centres when they first start their jobs and, you know, maybe then when they reach a, a stage in life where they don't want to be around sort of the metro metropolitan lights, they move out. And you can imagine sort of a gradual but but not that gradual transformation of our cities. So I'm really interested. So that guy who's a workplace place property expert a couple of weeks ago, a guy called Anthony Slumbers, I was really interested with the different angle he was coming at really. And finally, if we can get a little bit radical, because I love ideas that sound crazy and yet make perfect sense. Um, have you come across any ideas about work that you actually fear are too radical for companies or people to to engage with quite yet? Um, there, there was something called the results only work environment, which was this project started by Best Buy, which was total autonomy, total anarchy. You were told you didn't need to come into the office. Uh, all meetings were optional. You could do your job asynchronously from wherever you want. So one guy bought himself a camper van and he did his job traveling around the US following his favorite band. Someone else uh, was a surfer and would surf all day down in Florida. Uh, and then I don't think you can surf in Florida, but he would surf all day in California, say, and then he would do his job in the evenings. Someone else went to college and then did her job at night. And it's like really interesting. But the, the problem was they ended up with uh, no team cohesion. People would do their specific job, but they had no connection with each other and no affinity. And so after a, um, a few years, it was sort of done for about four or five years and they abandoned it. So, you know, I think things like that are interesting thought experiments, but they, you know, they don't always work. I, I guess it's a shame that they don't get tweaked or continue to play with, that they just get abandoned quite quick, like in their current Yeah, form. it is. It is. Yeah. I mean, you know, normally what happens in those situations, that one, um, you have like the people who are the visionary behind it, the the person who's responsible for it normally leaves after a few years and the idea suddenly loses impetus. And I think that's what happened on that one. That's quite, a, it's almost quite a sad note to end on. I'm wondering if we can perk it up, for the, uh, <laughs> if we can um, end on a, on a happier note, Anna. What, um, <laughs> always here to turn things around, Tiffany. Um, let's get this, let's make this super practical. Uh, Bruce, what is one thing that our listeners can do immediately um, you know, in the next couple of days after listening to this to uh, improve their own working lives or the, or, or the things that they do actually have control over in their working lives? What's one, what's one of your best tips for them? I mean, you know, the, you've mentioned monk mode. I think um, taking uh, right now, taking an explicit lunch break is a really important thing. Trying to forge a connection between when you're working and when you're not working. These are journalists I adore called a music journalist I adore called Peter Robinson. And he says his secret of long-term secret of freelance work was that he, um, he always puts shoes on when he's working. And uh, it's just a really interesting thing because he wanted to, uh, he wants to signal to his, his head, look, I'm working now, not working. Because otherwise we can find ourselves all the time 
defaulting to just opening their laptop and, and doing a couple more emails. And so, you know, putting shoes on is a bit like the cabbie putting his light on. You sort of, you know, you're signaling you, you're set for a job to, to do a job. So, um, I think things like that, forging a better separation between work life and home life is quite helpful. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Bruce. This has been such a brilliant conversation. Um, Lovely to chat to you both. Yes. Thank you very much. And where can people find you on the internet if they want to learn more? Listen, um, probably the best thing is uh, sign up for my newsletter, which is at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. And a lot of that is just, you know, there's a lot of firms right now debating what they do with regards to going back to the office. There's a lot of firms right now debating what they do about, you know, how do they configure work for the future? And all I do each week there is just chat to different firms and try and work out what their solutions to those things are. So the newsletter is probably the best thing. Brilliant. Thank you again very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bruce. You are listening to Is This Working? Hosted by Anna Gerardo and Tiffany Philippou. Produced by Chris Bannister. Continue the conversation with us over on Twitter at isthisworking underscore show.